Elizabeth Hinton in A War Within Our Own Boundaries makes the argument that the roots of the contemporary mass incarceration system, the modern criminal legal system, are from Lyndon B. Johnson's presidency in the 1960s instead of the conservative presidencies of Nixon and Reagan. The fundamental shift of the criminal legal system into its modern form, Hinton says, is a result of the merger of anti-poverty programs with anti-crime programs. In order to understand Hinton's argument, it is important to go back to the New Deal and the first wave of federal social service programs. The New Deal was a period of time in which the federal government massively expanded its power to respond to the economic crisis of the Great Depression. The New Deal was a series of legislation creating a complex federal administrative state. Some of these laws created new rights, like labor rights, the protection of unions, workplace safety standards, etc. And others created new social services, like unemployment insurance. Scholars have noted that the kinds of rights and services created in the New Deal created a kind of dual citizenship. Federal rights and protections were framed as universal in that they were guaranteed without conditions. If you worked and you got laid off, you were entitled to unemployment insurance. If you worked, you had income put into Social Security, which you automatically received at a certain age or if you became permanently disabled. There were some limits on the universality of these rights. Most famously, labor protections for unions excluded agricultural and domestic work, fields which were dominated at the time by African-American and women workers. But for the most part, Anyone had a right to unemployment insurance, unions, and social security. So this is one kind of tier of citizenship, federally guaranteed and federally administered programs. And these were framed as kind of basic citizenship rights. The other part of the New Deal, the second tier, if you will, was administered by state and local agencies and was much more heavily qualified. Those state-administered programs were welfare, or I think it was called aid to dependent children. This was a means-tested entitlement program, which subsidized the income of families where fathers were deceased, absent, or unable to work. The recipients of this were uh, the class of women who basically didn't have a man to bring in a family income and was unable to secure sufficient income of her own, it had to be a single woman, really a single mother, or a woman whose husband was unable to work. She had to be poor enough, but she also had to behave correctly. If she and her husband hadn't been married, for example, she might not be eligible for the aid to dependent children. The famous no man in the house rule is, um, I forget when it's first, when it first crops up, but is an example of the kind of qualifications that were put on welfare as a social service. If a woman had a man in her home and inspectors found him there, she would be cut off from the welfare program because basically she was morally corrupt.
So as with the private philanthropy of middle-class women in the 19th century, the New Deal's first version of welfare required a kind of moral decency from the women receiving the funds. This program was administered by uh, states, so the federal government would give money to states who administered the program, and that meant that states could come up with their own rules about who could qualify. And so the rights and services that were administered by the states, the parts of the New Deal that were not federally guaranteed and federally administered, they were not seen as basic citizenship rights, they were a means-tested entitlement program. Um, these were subjected to income and behavior requirements and uh, were also explicitly gendered. It was meant for poor mothers, very specifically. And it doesn't create a sense of uh, expanded citizenship rights in the way that the labor protections did. So after the New Deal and after World War II, there is the beginnings of the civil rights movement, which you could say culminated in the civil rights legislation of LBJ's presidency. Lyndon B. Johnson, or LBJ's Great Society Program, was in many ways a second New Deal. It expanded the role of the federal government and created a larger federal administrative state. It also borrowed from the dual citizenship framework of the New Deal. Local and state programs were rooted in um, qualifications, conditions, and explicitly about managing behavior, whereas federal programs were more universal, less conditional, and creative created a more expansive idea of citizenship rights. So to give you a sense of the kind of restructuring or um, the legislative sweep of the American government in the 1960s, here's some of the legislation that was passed. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed. The Food Stamp Act was passed and the Economic Opportunity Act was passed. And this um, is what funded the Job Corps, Head Start, and Youth Opportunity Centers that Hinton refers to. Uh, interestingly, 1964 is also when Johnson first drops the tax rate for individuals and corporations. So the wealthy elite and corporations began to be taxed at a lower rate in the 1960s, 1964 specifically. In 1965, Congress passed the Housing and Urban Development Act, which subsidized private homes for low-income renters, the Social Security Act, which created Medicaid and Medicare, the Voting Rights Act. So this, the Voting Rights Act, is what allowed Congress the power to review and approve of local voting regulations in specific areas. Um, this is what sort of was seen as the toppling of Jim Crow and his also a congressional power that the Supreme Court recently overturned. So, and Shelby, the Shelby County Supreme Court case from a couple years ago overturned the pre-clearance part of the Voting Rights Act. And as a direct result of that, one year later, there was a reduction in voter turnout in all of the counties specified in the legislation. So, um, but yeah, so in 1965, you have the Housing and Urban Development Act, Social Medicaid and Medicare, the Voting Rights Act, 
1965, Congress also passed the Law Enforcement Assistance Act, which treated law enforcement departments very much like they treated local welfare agencies. This act created the Office of Law Enforcement Assistance, which Hinton talks about at length. Um, OLEA, the Office of Law Enforcement Assistance, invested the vast majority of federal crime control funds into local police departments, private firms, and social science researchers who all worked to improve urban surveillance and patrol strategies. So what I want to mention now, and we'll talk about it more a little bit later, but what's interesting about the series of legislation is that it reflects the same kind of split, right? Some of these rights are you know, administered by the federal government, others are administered by the states. Um, the ones that are administered by the states tend to have more discretion attached to them. And uh, the Law Enforcement Assistance Act, like the welfare, first welfare of the New Deal, um, are essentially the federal government giving states money with broad directives like you know, uh, make sure women of a good moral character are the ones receiving these funds and reduce crime. And then those directives are enacted with a great deal of local discretion. Oh, and then in 1968, uh, the Fair Housing Act was passed and the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. So I think even from that sort of listing of all of the different kinds of legislation, you see that there's very much a relationship between the idea of managing the population and managing crime, and that these social services and law enforcement are part of the same thing, uh, part of the same process. Now, despite the legislative wins of this era, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act are very significant, of course, um, but still many Black communities in the late 1960s experienced uprisings in protest of poor living conditions, economic insecurity, continued racist practices, police brutality, etc. These uprisings posed a fundamental challenge to liberal elected elites who framed the uprising as just riots and evidence of endemic criminality in black communities. They refused, the elites refused to see the uprisings as political statements, at least not as overt ones. Hinton argues that the expanding welfare state was infused with mechanisms of surveillance and discipline that formally linked social welfare programs with carceral tools. We can see her argument as closely following Duber's analysis. The state is not a democratic state representing the people, but a householder using police power to ensure the well-being of the household and by ensuring that there is a uh, process to make the members of the household adhere to rules. I think there's also an argument that 
expanding the federal government powers through creating more expansive social services is an example of Duber's notion of autonomy and self-government. I mean, Medicaid, Medicare, the Fair Housing Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. I mean, all of these were um, very, well, I wouldn't say very, very radical, but they were pretty radical um, pieces of legislation. And more importantly, they reflected both they reflected a social movement, a political movement. Um, they reflected changes in constituencies, right? And so more liberal politicians were being elected. And um, so I think there is an argument for seeing at least the legislation itself as reflecting a kind of autonomy. But as we talked about with Duber in class, um, I think really the history that Hinton focuses on, really what it does is it lets us see the American state in contradiction with itself. So yes, this is an example of police power. Yes, maybe this is also an example of self-government and um, yet, on the one hand, I mean, police powers, the concept of policing is just so fundamental to so much of this legislation. On the one hand, law enforcement um, officers were used to implement some of the great society programs. On the other hand, many great society programs relied on crime control strategies around surveillance and discipline. And so that entanglement between social welfare programs and law enforcement, I think you could say, um, makes an argument that, again, we just have an American state that is a, a state of contradiction. <laughs> um, Hinton also notes that a lot of sort of traditional analysis is that the riots of the 1960s mobilized white backlash and the rise of conservatism. Uh, but she says that it's actually more correct to look at the riots as a fundamental threat to American law and institutions. And the punitive turn of social welfare reforms was a reaction to that threat. As with the creation of the Chicago Police Department described by Sam Mitrani, Public disturbances caused by an uncontrollable population of poor or working class people resulted in a new institutional response to control those disturbances. If we see the 1960s uprisings as a response to the limitations of the Great Society, a fundamental challenge to the American state's inability to deal with racism and economic security, we can also interpret the entanglement of social services and crime control as a manifestation of a police power concerned with maintaining the well-being of the state, the household, threatened by this challenge. So on the one hand, great society programs did create more federal rights and services, healthcare, rental assistance, expanded welfare roles, um, et cetera. 
But on the other hand, none of these programs actually eradicated poverty or dealt with a racist society, partly because this is still the middle of the Cold War and capitalism had to be protected from the very present threat of communism. I mean, this is also the beginning of the Vietnam War. Martin Luther King's expansion of his political analysis to include the importance of labor rights, the importance of economic equality, is another example of how the civil rights movement was leading into a more explicit economic analysis that threatened the tenets of capitalism. You can see this with Martin Luther King. You can see this with Fred Hampton, um, who was killed in, gosh, in the 1960s, 1966. Uh, with Fred Hampton and the growth of the Black Panther Party, which had an explicit Marxist ideology. I don't think Hinton takes into account the importance of the political agitation of the era, the influence of the Cold War, etc. Um, the uprisings, the riots that she described were very much in the context of a growing radicalism a view that the civil rights movement showed the power of a people's movement and hadn't done enough to alleviate the suffering of the poor. And that the that failure was of the civil rights movement was seen in part as a failure um, essentially of capitalism that a political movement had to address the cause of economic inequality and that really was an existential threat to the American state during the Cold War. So I see these elements, political agitation, the Cold War, etc., as really adding to Hinton's argument. The population had to be controlled, it had to be managed, and combining social services with law enforcement sort of allowed the state to manage the population with a kind of carrot-and-stick approach. Hinton goes into you know, quite a bit of detail about how the Office of Law Enforcement Assistance, OLIA, operated, um, which was actually as a block grant system. So this is a little technical, but it's important because uh, so block grants were essentially an extension of the kind of discretion that states had to implement federal programs locally. Whereas with traditional welfare, the aid to families with dependent children, states were given funds that had, they had a little bit more direction about how the funds were meant to be distributed. So the federal government was like, here, have, you know, $5 million or whatever, and uh, you know, you want to make sure that it's going to X, Y, and Z populations. But block grants, on the other hand, which Olia is the first example of this, block grants, it was just literally the, a federal grant of a certain amount of money that localities could use much more freely. So there were much fewer conditions placed on block grants. Now, this is important because the block grant system became the foundation of the Clinton era welfare reforms, really the dismantling of the welfare system um, is essentially transferred uh, 
welfare to an entirely black grant system. This is, so this is important because, well, A, it predicts sort of the direction that the Clinton era reforms go in, but, you know, this extreme amount of discretion that was given to states was in the context of Olia was very much against the trend of other great society programs, most of which tended to be those kind of universal federal programs. Hinton notes that this restored a degree of autonomy to states that was threatened by the dismantling of Jim Crow. Interesting also that she uses that word autonomy there. It has been true since the New Deal. It was true of the Great Society, and it is true today that locally administered programs tend to have much, much more racially biased outcomes than federally administered programs. And you can see absolutely uh, the battle of federalism between power for the federal government versus power to the state governments as a... um, uh, a story about guaranteeing racial equality or refusing to guarantee racial equality. State and local programs just really tend to have more racist outcomes than federal programs. Um, so the other thing, so the other thing that's significant about Olia is that it predicted the. Um, the transition of law enforcement departments into real police departments, um, like police in terms of that Duber Foucauldian sense, where there's an explicit use of these departments to capture data that is used to manage populations. So Olia gave money to local law enforcement for new technologies like bulletproof vests, machine guns, armored vehicles, helicopters, much of this being military-grade equipment that had been introduced in overseas, in, you know, overseas interventions, um, in wars. And remember, both Foucault and Duber talk about the relationship between the state's power to protect itself from external threats and from internal threats. Uh, Olia also gave money to local law enforcement for new surveillance techniques and use of data, modernizing uh, data gathering capabilities, using machines and computers to predict crime outcomes. And the Model Cities program explicitly connected law enforcement and social services by funding precincts alongside community-based anti-poverty efforts and by sometimes giving officers a role in administering social programs. So while I believe that many great society programs uh, were good (laughs) and were passed with a real commitment to helping people, Um, Obviously, you know, I don't want to understate the importance of the civil rights legislation, the creation of Medicaid and Medicare, etc. And I don't think there was a deliberate attempt at the time to expand the carceral state, although the carceral state did grow out of these foundations. Rather, what I think Hinton's history tells us 
is that the American state does have a particular concept of governing that relies on a police power focused on managing the population by preventing disorder. And that the American state sees inequality, class inequality, as somewhat natural or inevitable, and thus attempts to confront class equality, or for that matter, confronting other quote unquote natural social phenomena like racial hierarchy or gender roles. Challenges to these quote unquote natural social phenomena are perceived as an existential threat to the state and as fundamentally creating disorder. So challenging social dynamics, especially outside of the context of um, control of elites, uh, is, is disorder, is a kind of crime against the household and thus has to be treated, um, well, as a crime, as something that needs to be managed. I think there's a lot of comparison between um, this point and Mitrani's history of the development of the Chicago police and Reichel's history of slave patrols. But in the next section of class, we will be exploring more specifics about how challenges to class, race, and gender inequalities are seen as sources of disorder and are at the core of what we expect law enforcement to respond to.